How are young people navigating uncertainty? Josh Packard is the executive director of Springtide Research Institute. He's a sociologist with a background in teaching, speaking, and writing. Springtide Research Institute specializes in researching people between the ages of 13 and 25 years old. Each fall, they publish a document called The State of Religion and Young People. Today's interview explores what they've learned about the faith lives of these young people as they've moved through such a season of incredible uncertainty. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Josh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So you work at Springtide Research Institute, and I think it would be great for purposes of our conversation if you told us a little bit about what Springtide is and what some of your goals are. Yeah, sure, of course. We're relatively new, so this is quite a natural starting place. Um, I've been around for the, about three years now, two and a half, three years, and uh, we're a research institute, you know, to put it very mm-hmm. straightforward. It's a but our, our, we have a very particular kind of focus, and, and primarily that means that we center all the work that we do on the faith and religious and spiritual lives of 13 to 25-year-olds. So that's what's commonly known right now as Gen Z. Now, as Gen Z ages, which, you know, obviously they're going to grow up and there are going to be some generation after them, we'll stay right here. We'll stay right here paying attention to 13 to 25-year-olds. And um, we just saw this as a, as a really growing need that was not met in the in the research world that um, really paying attention to young people uh, at, all the way down to that 13 age bracket uh, through a variety of, you know, we do a lot of surveys. We've done like 30,000 surveys over the last few years. And I think we're closing in on 300 interviews. Um, and b- because so many young people are really beginning to make important decisions and, and not either like both like making their own decisions, but also they're starting to be informed about the wide variety of possibilities when it comes to faith and religion and spirituality at younger and younger ages. And we really wanted to make sure we captured that um, at that at that low end. And then of course, going all the way up to 25, you know, I mean, that's when social scientists, parents might not like this, but social scientists have, have found that that's about the, that is about the age at which you can say that people have like statistically the majority have moved out of their home of origin and are, are, for lack of a better, uh, more technical term, on their own, um, which is not, you know, that, that is not something that always happens uh, evenly or certainly not across the board for all groups. And sometimes there's stops and starts with that, but that's, that's about where we cap that off. And the other thing that makes our work, I think, a little bit unique in this space is that we are, um, we're not doing it through the lens of any particular faith perspective. So, you know, we're not a Baptist research group studying young Baptists um, or, or, you know, a Jewish research group studying young Jews. We really are uh, paying attention to all young people. And that includes, and maybe the biggest focus is on that 40% of young people who claim no religious affiliation. They're really trying to understand them and how they're, you know, what new things are on the horizon for faith leaders and religious leaders and parents as they try to engage that group. And, and also then to try and um, try and help them to do new things with that group. So we're not just a research institute, we're an applied research institute. And we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how to make sure that our, our data and our research is actionable. One of the things we say all the time is we don't want to be interesting, we want to be useful. And I think that that makes us, uh, you know, sort of um, a little unique in the, in the world of researchers. Yeah, that's great. So it struck me just simply looking at the founding date of Springtide, 
in 2019. Um, one of the things we want to talk about today is young people and navigating uncertainty. And these have been three of the most uncertain years in my living memory. So can you talk a little bit about this, this theme of uncertainty um, and maybe what it's been like to come alongside the uncertainty of young people in such just a generally uncertain time? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm chuckling here because we did. We the, the first publication that we released, the first study we did was called Belonging, Reconnecting America's Loneliest Generation. And it came out in March of 2020. I'm, I remember very distinctly that we were launching at the same time that everything was shutting down. And it was. Yeah. What an yeah. what what a month in not, in our collective memory. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think that I think that, that even that first publication tells you something about the about why these past few years have felt um, the way that they felt. I mean, we we did that study uh, and wrote that publication. Obviously, in order for it to come out in the same week that the country was shutting down, um, we did that work months before that, before anybody knew anything about um, you know about a pandemic or or that there would be um, you know what it, what the word COVID even meant. And and so the reality is that even walking into this pandemic. There's clear research out there. I mean, a really big study from Cigna in 2018, 60,000 Americans confirming for the first time ever that Gen Z, the youngest generation, is the loneliest generation that we've ever recorded using a very standard scale uh, of loneliness. And then our own work extending that down to 13-year-olds in that book, um, really signaling that something new and different was going on with this generation. And then, of course, COVID comes and doesn't help any of that at all. Um, and it's, you know, as a research institute, it's limited us a little bit in terms of our methodology, which we're starting to emerge from now. So mostly we've been relying on surveys and interviews. Um, and, and now we get a, we're starting to ease up a little bit and get a chance to do some more unique um, and, and in-depth forms of data collection. But we have heard from, you know, thousands and thousands of young people. And what the pandemic has done really is accelerate these trends that were, that were already in place, you know, the, the foundations of which were built years before the pandemic. Yeah, I keep thinking with so many different things in society that the pandemic has just been like a brick on the gas pedal. Right. Um, any kind of inequity or um, questions of belonging or loneliness, um, it's just exacerbated it or accelerated it. So, so let's talk about um, the theme of how young people then are navigating uncertainty. So can you talk to me about kind of how that became a core research question? And then, and then we can get into a little bit about what you found. Yeah, so every fall, we put out the state of religion and young people. And the first year was, one of the things we found was that the young people were responding less to programs and more to relationships. And uh, in particular, relationships that were done um, in a, in a, with, you know, with a combination of particular characteristics, along with expertise, there were things like caring and listening and integrity. Um, and, and when, after, after we wrote that and, and sort of broke that down, the next question that occurred to us was like, okay, well, can, can these relationships actually move young, can they provide comfort? Can they provide certainty, assurance? Can they provide clarity? Like, what do these relationships do? And that's what got us turning our, our minds and, and heads towards uncertainty as young people were obviously navigating, as you mentioned, you know, completely unprecedented times. And so for state of religion, young people for 2021, that, that, that was our focus. Um, and it became it became really evident that uh, what we you know some as some of the best research is like what we thought we would find is just wasn't there. So what we thought is that we were going to find, you know, oh in twenty twenty we come along and say like hey you know your programs aren't so effective but you know you, the relationships that you form with young people are really important. 
And so we're going to come along the next year and talk about, you know, how great these relationships are and how many young people have with adults. And wouldn't it be ideal if one year had a great question and the next year had a great answer? (laughs) That's what we were hoping for. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And what it turns out was like, it became actually a little bit more revealing in terms of like, oh, we don't, we don't actually have systems to do relationships and ministry at scale. And, and so when we look at how young people are navigating uncertainty, as much as they really want those, uh, those trusted adult relationships and need them, I mean, all the research confirms that they need them. Um, and, our, and our research really shows that young people desire them. They still just don't have them. And it's not because, uh, I mean, you all talk to a lot of people in, in ministry, you know, have you ever met anybody who's not working hard enough? I haven't. <laughs> you know, like, no, uh, but, the, but the standard joke is part-time pay for full-time work, right? Exactly. Um, you know, there's, there's structural impediments, but not, there's not a, there's not a deficit of caring, um, or a deficit of intention. We, we are working with some structural issues and, you know, that are impediments that are in place. Um, and so who are young people turning to, to navigate uncertainty? Well, they're often turning to, you know, a variety of other sources, including their peers. And that was really what this study was about was, all right. So only something like 6% of young people told us that, during the pandemic that a faith leader had reached out to check on them. And that's an astonishingly low number. Um, And again, I don't think that's a, that's not an indicator of how much youth directors care or how much campus ministers are working or anything like that. It's just like, we just don't have systems to reach out to people to form relationships when they're not coming through our doors anymore. And, uh, and so in that absence, young people, we found turning to a variety of sources online, they're turning to their friends, they're, they're asking a lot of questions and a variety of other things. So let's talk more about that. So you broke it down a little bit to talk about, tell me if this is a false characterization, but kind of an old model of relationships where it's either kind of expertise, which I would call like a a relationship of positional authority. Someone's like a teacher or an expert, or um, someone has kind of this more proximate relationship of familiarity or closeness. And, And I think what you're trying to move toward is a different model of relational authority or what you're perhaps recommending to faith communities. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people when they, a lot, of, especially um, religious leaders, you know, we've, uh, we, we get really worried about anything that moves away from positioning us as the expert because we get concerned then that the, the only alternative then is to sort of uh, be a young person's friend for lack of a better term, or, or like their fun uncle or something like that, you know, like, but yep. we're not really doing formation with them if, if we're not being the expert. And uh, so th- with, without being able to sort of imagine or conceptualize another option, I think a lot of times religious folks get caught in between those two poles. Like I can either be the expert in the room or I can be the one they like. Well, I can't compromise on, you know, the scriptures and the word of God. So I'm going to be in this expert role. But what we saw from the day, I mean, young people were really clear. They really don't want adults to be their friends. Um, they, they tell us that they have a lot of friends. Often their friends are the source of all the problems and drama. So they're not looking for adults to add to that. Uh, Which might be like a relief for a lot of adults to hear like, oh, good, I don't have to be the cool one or something. I don't have to try to be the friend. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, so I hear this, I, you know, a lot of people working in youth ministry have heard this before too. You know, somebody will say like, oh gosh, it's such a, you know, I'm, I'm so not cool. Or like the kids don't think that I'm cool. Like they don't, I, we didn't hear a single interview from a kid who said that they really needed their youth minister to be cool or that they left church because their pastor was, you know, <laughs> such a square or something like that. Not that kids would use that term. 
but the... <laughs> dating yourself a little bit sure yeah, yeah um the uh instead what they told us is that they really want adults to be adults but the the trick is that um being an adult that matters in the life of a young person means that you're an adult who is curious about their life, who will genuinely listen to them, who shows and expresses care by spending time uh, with them, by sharing things from their own life with those young people. It's, you know, it really comes back to that old adage that a young person will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. Hmm. And when, when we lead with um, expertise, whether that's in the form of our position at an institution, like, you know, I've got such and such title. I've been, you know, we've been here for so long. We have this many members, like young people don't care about any of that. They, they really just yeah. don't. Um, until, until they know that you rep like you have their best interests in mind and not the institution's best interests in mind. Yeah. And so that's the, and that's the real key. You have to, you have to convince them that you have their best interests in mind because their default is to think that you have the institution's best interest in mind, not theirs. And spoiler mm. alert, they really, really, really don't trust institutions, just like their parents and their parents' parents. I think there's another thing in your report that is a bit of a pressure point for a lot of people who do work um, in churches. And you identified a statistic um, that during the pandemic, Many people lost the practice of attending religious services, but also that they were pretty happy to have lost that connection. And I imagine that that's a pretty jarring thing for those who, who plan and kind of dedicate their lives to these kind of meaningful communal worship experiences. So can you talk a little bit more about, about that? Because I, I anticipate how that lands with people. So this is a more complicated story. So for those people listening, hearing that for the first time and are sort of alarmed, I mean, it is alarming, but also it, it, there's a complicated story here that is really important that makes it somewhat less alarming. Um, young people, about a third of young people said they got more religious during the pandemic, uh, more mm -hmm. spiritual, more religious. About a third said they declined. And, but the vast majority stayed the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's, that, that was really strong. I, I, you know, I would not, it's not that I was expecting it, but I would not have been surprised to see young people come through the pandemic and say like, that was it for me. Like, you know, just massive numbers leaving mm -hmm. um, or worse, not caring about the question, um, which I, I do, I do think is worse. The, um, what's really going on during the pandemic is that when they were completely loosened and unmoored from those institutional ties is not that they replaced them. You know, it's not that there's a, a gulf or a vacuum that exists. It's that they started replacing those sort of taken for granted practices, which weren't particularly fulfilling before the pandemic now with new things and explorations. Mm. And some of those are like, you know, like what, what do young people tell us that they're, you know, finding meaning and purpose in? Well, like engaging with nature, um, conversations with friends, hobbies, art, music, et cetera. And those are all fine and good and great. Um, the, you know, certainly have no problem with those. We're big believers in the power of institutions. I mean, as I mentioned a couple of times, we're sociologists. There, there's, no, there's not like meaningful, long-term coordinated human activity that can be sustained without institutions. Mm. They're really, really important. And, um, but, they're, but they're not, but religious institutions, as we've seen in other parts of the world, are not... Um, we shouldn't take for granted. It's not their birthright that they're going to exist and be around. 
Um, so they do have to respond to the environment in order to keep engaging people. And I think one of the things we're seeing from Gen Z here is this, this understanding of like, well, if you're going to package this entire system up and hand it to me and tell me that these are the things that I get to do, and I have really no agency over that, um, then instead of, they're not going to pick bits and pieces of it. They're just going to reject that notion wholesale. And they're going to go and try and find this in other places. I, I don't think they'll be successful over the long run, because again, I, I think these institutions are really critical. But then I don't think the institutions will be successful over the, you know, it's sort of a mutual demise situation in, unless one or the other can pivot um, and engage uh, more fully. And our position at Springtide is like, that's clearly the job of the adults, not the kids. Um, you know, it's the institution's job to pivot, not on their beliefs. Nobody's, you know, young people don't, uh, they weren't asking, you know, institutions or people even to change their beliefs. And certainly uh, one of the great things about Christianity and religion in general in America is that there's, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you have a particular belief and that's the, that is the sort of like, I'm going to die on this hill belief for you, you can probably find a religious community that embraces that. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of room to, to pivot and change and adapt about how we engage people around those beliefs. Rituals uh, are critically important for young people. They really like them. They like them though when they're connected to relationships and meaning and people. They don't like them when they just mm -hmm. exist in a vacuum and they don't understand them or don't resonate with them in some particular way. So I think there's really there's real room for that. Um, yeah. And and even though and we should be clear too about like so young people might have said that they liked the fact uh, that they lost touch with some of these communities, but we're interviewing and surveying 13 to 25 year olds. I mean, we, we take their words very seriously. We respect them a lot, but they're also kids and the hallmark mm -hmm. of youth is change and, you know, lack of perspective. I mean, they're not all kids, obviously the 18 to 25 year olds are not, um, you know, they're adults, but they're young. Um, and it's, and it's worth remembering that because there's also a lot of data that we've collected and others, which, which we report and, and Gallup just came out with this giant, uh, uh, some summary of all their, their data about religion and flourishing that, is pretty conclusive. Religious people and religious young people fare better than their mm. non-religious counterparts. They're flourishing in all, you know, more in almost every part of their life. Can you talk you about can what that about means them. to fare better? Yeah, well, and so it's like, you know, are you, it's a variety of indicators here. Like, are you, how do it's self-report data? You know, how are you mm -hmm. doing at school? How are, how's your mental health? How's your faith and spiritual life, et cetera. Um, as well as depending on who's doing the study, some standard scales that are used around those things. Um, but no matter how we look at it, the, the result is still the same. You can argue, I think, and people do, goodness knows I was an academic and people argue about these things about <laughs> why that is like, you know, is it the divine presence in your life that causes that? Or is it like the community that often comes with religion that causes that or, you know, whatever it is, but nevertheless, religion leads to flourishing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's not, it's, you know, generally speaking, I'm going to be very clear about this and bracket this generally speaking, more religion leads to more flourishing, but there is a, there's a limit to that, obviously. And that's why I'm being very careful here. Um, it's not that all religion is equally good and in vast quantities. I mean, there's obviously ways of being really harmful and damaging and, and controlling and lacking an inquiry and those kinds of things. Um, so while young people might say that they're happy about it, we're not, you know, we should, we should put that in its appropriate place. That is probably how they feel. They feel that way for a variety of reasons but it is not necessarily an indication of their sort of fundamental levels of flourishing or happiness. Yeah. So I'm curious for you to talk, you said about how young people do find a great deal of meaning in rituals, um, as long as they're connected and grounded in relationships. Can you share a story or an example that demonstrates that? Yeah. So in fact, um, 
the we 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 can I can share one from a young person I was just talking to a uh, young Jewish person actually that I was just talking to the other day. Um, and, and he was saying, it's like, when I was younger, like, I didn't understand what all this candle lighting was about. Like, why are we getting together? It's like, mm-hmm. it just felt like we were constantly lighting candles. Yeah. Um, what so are funny. we doing? Yeah, it's sort of funny to think about that because it's, you know, it's the only time I've ever heard a young person say they didn't like fire, for example. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> um, young people always like fire. Uh, but, you know, to him, it just felt like going through the motions. And, and it wasn't until um, he said that his, his grandmother sat him down um and explained why why a particular rich i can't remember if it was if um oh gosh i'm blanking on which one it was uh, but she was explaining why it was important to her and and how it had it reminded her of her own parents which would be this mm-hmm. young man's great grandparents um and then it started to click for him and then that abstract became real but you know so often what we're trying to do is connect young people to this like very intellectualized version of the faith you, we have to understand you know like we we think that in order to access some meaning of these rituals whether it's you know i mean i think about you know my own tradition is there's a lot of uh, emphasis in my youth put on understanding the timeline of events that led up to Good Friday and then to Easter, like really in some cases breaking it down hour by hour. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it wasn't, you know, for me, like Easter never really meant anything in, until I was able to comprehend what it, like what the implications were. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's what this young man was explaining. He was like, okay, so I, I like, I know what Yom Kippur is. Like, I, I understand what, you know, what Purim is, which is the Jewish holiday that just passed. Mm-hmm. Like, I get all that. I've studied it, but like understand resonating with it. That's a thing that's old, that that's not going to come um, for, especially for this generation through learning. I mean, not learning in that traditional sense of like, you know, what are the, what are the theological under that, that's work that, that work that used to be primary now needs to be secondary. It's the, the experiential relationship stuff that needs to lead the way Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So it sounds like he kind of had this ritual experience or this practice, but then his grandmother's testimony is what kind of made it come alive. Oh yeah. And I should say, and then, and then he was like, I'm sorry, I I forgot to close the loop on that story. He was like, so, you know, I'll, he's like, I'll never miss that again because now it's Mm -hmm. a, it's, it's a connection to my grandmother. Yeah. And so he has, it's part of his own DNA. Right. I mean, it probably was before, but his awareness of it has changed. Right. So I'm curious, as you think about the work ahead and your continued um, journeying with young people, what's something that, that makes you hopeful and, and curious moving forward? I think we're incredibly hopeful. I mean, I think this decline narrative is a little bit um, misconstrued. It's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. we've been paying attention to a couple of variables for a while now about it. The nuns and the duns, right? Yeah, exactly. About attendance and affiliation. Um, if they were adults, we would call them nickels and noses, but kids don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, um, and it's not to say that uh, attendance and affiliation are unimportant, and certainly they are on the decline. That is, those things are both, those things are all true. But we don't think that that's the real story that matters. Um, it's uh, that, or the, that that is the only story that matters, and we certainly don't see that it's a very strong indicator of these sort of underlying religious and spiritual activity. And so, actually, we're really hopeful when it comes to young people's religious faith and spiritual lives. The uh, our position at Springtime is that young people's religious lives need to be well attended to in order for them to flourish. 
And, you know, for some young people, that's going to look like uh, considering a whole bunch of things and ultimately rejecting religion and faith and God altogether. Uh, we think those young people are far better off than the young folks who just, uh, who pay no attention to it, who don't have any framework for understanding it. And to that end, we are, you know, really encouraged because what we see is young people in a variety of ways asking a lot of questions. So in that first state of religion report that I mentioned, we really broke open those categories of affiliated and unaffiliated and, and show that they don't mean what you might think that they mean. Um, like over half of young people who are affiliated say that they don't trust organized religion. You know, so they're checking the box to say I'm Christian, Catholic, or I'm Jewish or whatever, but then they're also saying like, I don't trust organized religion. And, and same, you know, and on and on, uh, we won't go through all of them. Uh, and on the unaffiliated side, we see a lot of unaffiliated young people who are praying regularly, who consider themselves religious, whose spirituality and, and faith has increased over the last few years. So we really see a much broader playing field, so to speak, for adults who want to be, you know, influential, have an influential role in the life of a young person, um, because they're open to those questions. They're having those conversations. Um, they're exploring these in a variety of ways, often online um, and, and in some terrifying ways with their friends. <laughs> like, you know, 16 year olds shouldn't be the leaders of other 16 year olds when it comes to uh, understanding millennia old religious traditions, but that's often- yeah. what Especially if the, if the forum for those conversations is social media or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, we've got 240 characters yeah. and a 5,000 year old faith and a 16 year old talking to each yeah. other about, which is great. I mean, we're really excited about all that, but also there should be an adult, you know, or five. Um, who are connected to that conversation in some way. And it doesn't mean that they need to be in every conversation, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, those conversations should be happening, you know, with people who have more perspective too. They shouldn't be reduced only to peer relationships. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I, we're, we're incredibly encouraged. We see, we, we don't see this like falling off of a cliff of young people's interest in God, um, uh, especially, or, or even the rituals that, so the company, Religion now, like they're going to interrogate them. They're going to ask all kinds of questions. They're especially going to want to know if any of those rituals are coming out of, you know, imperialist or racist or sexist um, cultures or environments. And they're going to they're going to ask tough questions about those things. The generation mm -hmm. cares very much about social justice and inclusion, mm -hmm. but those challenging conversations can be really great. Rituals don't always have to look the same forever. Yeah. So, I don't know a single Christian leader who isn't thinking whether or not they work directly with young people or not, who isn't thinking about questions of, of faith for the younger generations, which I think is also encouraging mm -hmm. um, that, this, that this is a lively question. You know, a lot of times it's driven by fear about, oh no, where, where are the young people, right? But the fact that it raises a question um, can be a good thing. So if you were to give an encouragement to, to, to faith leaders, to Christian faith leaders, um, to keep asking good questions about, the religious lives of young people, what kinds of questions would you want them to continue to lead with? Well, so the questions that I would say, I mean, you're, as we were talking right now, I've got this poster on the wall behind me. Uh, I know it's an, this is a, it's an audio medium, not a visual one. So this is a, this is probably not making for the best podcast copy. Um, so I'm going to describe a picture. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Go for it. But it's a it's a picture of Ted Lasso, and it's a it's a quote for, actually from um, Einstein, if I remember correctly. But it's featured prominently in um, in the show Ted Lasso. If you're not watching it, or if you haven't watched it, you definitely should. And he's Amen. Saying, I'll I'll second that. Yeah, it's really great. It was exactly what I needed during the pandemic. I just couldn't mm -hmm. watch hard stuff. Um, and and it says, "Be curious, not judgmental." And I think all too often, what we get 
we just don't get enough genuine curiosity from religious leaders about the lives of young people. We get a lot of assumptions. Um, we certainly have, we get a lot of strong opinions about what young people should be doing um, and should not be doing, but we don't get a lot of just outright curiosity, um, especially when it comes to really complicated and hot button issues where adults feel like they have to make a stand. Um, and you know, really hold the line. And we think that it, even to ask or entertain the question is, is, is it's as though we're abdicating our, you know, our responsibility to, to um, set the moral or ethical standard or religious standard for them. But if I could encourage adults to do anything, it would be that. The, the, first and foremost, to be curious. One, we have a podcast called The Voices of Young People where you know, it's, just a, it, it's a really diverse group of young people talking about our research on each, uh, each episode is often one or just two people. And one young woman told me in the first season or second season, she said, our experience with adults is of being dismissed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it really clicked for me about why, you know, often as a, when I was a professor, I would have to ask my students, even my own advisees several times, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Like, you know, over and over and over. Mm -hmm. um, how can I help you? And I, I'm coming from a really genuine place of like, I'll, you know, I'll make introductions. We'll set up internships. Like we'll do whatever we can to help you. This is what college is for. But they just yeah. didn't think that I was really being honest until I'd asked the third and fourth and fifth time until I'd taken notes about what they had said and reflected it back to them to follow up and see if that was still true. And, you know, until I'd actually set up that introduction for that internship at the, you know, at the nonprofit downtown or wherever they wanted to work. It was, you know, that we, we have to be, we have to think of ourselves as working I think a little bit at a deficit. And so being curious, following through, really showing young people that you are in it for them is, it will go a long way because when they, that assumption that, that you, you know, are going to dismiss them and that you're, that you don't have their best interest in mind, that can be a, that's obviously a difficult place to start from. There's no doubt. Yeah. But the good thing is that if you can do just a little bit, when you're starting from that place, if you can do just a little bit to show genuine curiosity and follow through, well, you can make a lot of progress in a very short amount of time. Hmm. That's a good word. It sounds like not just genuine curiosity, but persistent yeah. curiosity. That's a good word. Josh, thank you so much for talking with me today. Hey, thank you, Sherry. I'm really glad to be here. If anybody's interested in the work, they can find us at springtideresearch.org. Um, and we're always happy to, you can email me directly, josh at springtideresearch.org. And I'm, we're, we're happy to talk. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin-Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.